This episode is brought to you by Magic Meals. We can't all be married to a gourmet chef. Sometimes someone can struggle for half a day to lay out the perfect special meal only to achieve an inedible plate of shoe leather or a turkey that might have been cooked at a dangerously insufficient temperature. But you still love them. You don't want to hurt their feelings. That's when you need Magic Meals. Magic Meals was designed by master illusionists and close-up magic veterans to give you the skills and materials you need to pretend to eat your special someone's unsavory creations without a single feeling hurt in the process. So go ahead, dig into your husband's overcooked steak, plow through your wife's favorite three-bean casserole, ask for seconds, just watch the look of happiness on their faces when you stuff yourself on their culinary catastrophes without a whiff of indigestion or food poisoning. Later, just dump the hidden bag of indelicacies into the dumpster at the local Dairy Queen when you stop to get something to eat. And now, our listeners can try out their new product line of disappearing illusions to escape from a dinner gathering entirely. Say, Joyce, want to hear what I think about the president? Oops, where'd she go? Bill, we're going to have a surprise intervention about your drinking problem. Hey, he was right here. Just use the promo code reread, one word, when you order your Magic Meals kit. And thank you, Magic Meals, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is actually brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. Thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, Craig. Hello. It's been a busy kind of week. Yeah, it's been a crazy week. (laughs) But we will get to that in a minute. Uh, Let's go ahead and talk about the last episode. Regarding the episode of Merwenna's execution, the most interest was in Mike Farrar's. Mike Farrar's rebuttal of our assessment that Merwenna was innocent and Eusebia was the killer. Yes. And that Eusebia then killed herself. And Gary Owens sees it generally the way you and I do. He says, the poison tossing scenario seems ridiculous on its face, but the question of why the story is in the text is even more convincing to me. If Severian is executing a random guilty person, why bother including it in the story? Alternatively, consider that despite his upbringing and training, Severian feels enough guilt and remorse to delude himself that would be character development and foreshadowing of his eventual renouncement of being a torturer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at with how I was talking about. It made more sense to me in the context of Severian's sort of over-apologizing and, or what it seemed to me as, right. as that is sort of like, yeah. Yeah, and Austin Beeman found the debate itself to be remarkable. He says, wow. This podcast episode was the first time I had ever heard anyone consider the fact that Marwenna may have been guilty. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and definitely Austin, a people whose analysis I greatly respect, whose approach to the books I consider solid, are of the opinion that Marwenna is guilty and kills Eusebia, just as Severian related. Even someone named Mark Aramini that, yeah. might have something to say about that. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, 
the conversation on this is not over. We're not going to embed it in this episode, but next weekend we're going to release a separate bonus rebuttal on the defense <laughs> of that murderous homicidal Moena. There are more points to address on this question and we're going to give it its platform. So keep your eye on the podcast feed. There was so much said on the Reddit post for chapter four of Claw by both Michael Andre Gerisi and Mike Farrar. I, I really tried to figure out how to summarize it. It's simply not possible. There's some perspective on Jonas and the antechamber that makes sense for us to hold on to them when you know we get to that chapter. There's a link in the show notes. Check it out. Um, at one point, Mike, who still argues emphatically for Moena's guilt, said, I will say, after listening to the show, I've moved from, I can't believe people think Moena is innocent, to, I understand why people think Moena is innocent, and reasonable <laughs> people are allowed to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Additionally, Michael Andrejuisi had some thoughts on literary poisoned flowers generally. He says, on the subject of the poison bouquet, uh, C.J.S. Thompson's Poison Romance and Poison Mysteries from 1904 says, The poisoned flowers of medieval romance and poisoned gloves and boots, which figure so often in legend and story as lethal media, we must dismiss as mere fables of an age when the historian drew largely on his imagination. That reminds me that there's a poison boot story in the book of the short sun. And... Speaking of poison flowers, after we recorded and edited that episode, I realized that the execution is another parallel to Shadow of the Torturer, another repeated tableau, poisoned flowers. And Michael was ready with a name for this tableau, Hour of Poison Flowers. That kind of rhymes. <laughs> and by the typical process that I read these books, that means... Morwenna killed Eusebia because she's the Agilis of Claw of the Conciliator, the one Severian executes who poisoned people with flowers. Hmm. I still don't believe she killed Eusebia, but if I did, I'd definitely be drawing on that as evidence for my case. That would be a structural parallel, yeah. Um, I still like the general poison flower idea. Yeah, it depends on on how you want to take that literally. To me, it's the difference is it comes at the beginning of the story here rather mm -hmm. than more towards the end. So, right. you know, I'd be looking more for you know, what's something what's right different about the contracts. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, also Michael wanted to talk about the religious doctrine in the Commonwealth, specifically on the reference Severian made on the scaffold to the tradition that the conciliator had died. Yeah. Now, if you believe this is a story that's a time loop, then we know that Severian is the conciliator and that he's buried in the mausoleum at the Citadel. And if you believe, as I do, that the man in the tomb is the first Severian, well, the conciliator is still dead. But how did the tradition, Craig, occur among the Commonwealth that the conciliator had died in the first place? The people of Typhon's time didn't see it. Well, Michael suggests that the tradition that the conciliar had died might have come from the guards that ineffectually blasted him in Earth of the New Sun. He says, the soldiers were blasting at the prisoner and then he was gone. Are the soldiers going to tell the monarch that the prisoner got away? They are the only witnesses. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know about that one. It seems to me that it would be like having a tradition about Jesus founded on the testimony of the guards who said that they fell asleep and his disciples took the body. I'm dissatisfied with that. That also gets into a whole other part of how Severian's legend gets built and how literal it is to what he 
actually goes through in earth that I've always had tons of questions about because mm -hmm. the, there's a whole lot about earth that doesn't to me really fit the way they talk about the conciliator. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that's just sort of the natural thing of over time, you, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's what so much of this book is about is over time you get away from the details and legends and things take on very different stories as mm -hmm. everything in the Brown book shows. But yeah. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know, but that's, that is a whole other, other can of worms. Yeah. Well, something I like more is Michael's association of the conciliator to the prophet Elijah. So the prophet Elijah, he, he didn't die. He handed his overcoat, his mantle, as the King James Bible calls it, to his assistant, Elisha. And then a whirlwind or tornado came and swept him up. And Elisha clears his eyes and sees Elijah being swept up into heaven in a chariot. And Elijah was the chief antagonist to the evil king Ahab and his Philistine consort, uh, Jezebel. And there's a tradition that Elijah will return before the coming of the Messiah. Jesus and his disciples actually discuss this theological point in the Gospels. But the Jewish Passover, there's a tradition to leave an extra place at setting for Elijah in case he returns. And I actually pondered a story once where there's this guy, he has a lot of weirdo things happen, but he reenacts the deeds of Elijah. And at one point he gets beaten and in a car wreck and he walks for miles and he comes to a house where the lights are on and he just opens the door without knocking and the family is having the Seder and he just collapses into the chair at Elijah's seat and drinks from his cup. But there's more to a story, obviously, than a bunch of decent set pieces. So that's why it never <laughs> developed. Anyway, Michael is trying to lay out the problem without necessarily solving it. He says, here's some of the cards. Based on Sev's walking off the cliff, one might say that the conciliator is more of an Elijah figure, which is especially strong since the conciliator is said to be coming back for a big event later. Further complications, the Jewish tradition has no truck with reincarnation, which is why Elijah's case is rare and important. He didn't die. But in the Commonwealth, reincarnation is a casual topic, at least in the Guild. Okay, so, you know, if I were going to guess, I'd say that the story of the conciliator's death, assuming Wolf had anything in mind at all, likely came from a non-historical source that worked its way into the New Sun religion, thus ending up with a tradition that was out of nowhere, but true. And I think that's compatible with the way Wolf thought of mythology, cosmology, and religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also true that Severian as conciliator doesn't necessarily get resurrected. He gets cloned of a sort, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, I don't know. That's, that's just another, another wrench in the works there. <laughs> On YouTube, Kaluther Kel Droma who has only read Shadow up till now, nothing else. But he's grateful to listen to our take on the whole book in order to, quote, assure him that the madness of the first book has some payoff. Oh, yeah, mm, I think it does. Yeah. Payoff, yes. Solution <laughs> I, is another thing. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but I can say much more emphatically now than when we started that, yeah, it has payoff. But despite only having one volume under his belt, Kaluther has already gleaned an interesting take. Kaluther refers to this as, quote, a tenuous connection. I have no idea what it's intended to mean. Here's how it goes. He references Agia's early take on Urvasi and Pururavas myth in chapter mm -hmm. 19, Shadow, when they're on their way to the Botanic Gardens. 
uh, she says, Aruvasi loved Pururavas, you know, before she saw him in a bright light. And then there's the reference to Agalus's execution. From far away came a scream, Agia's voice as unmistakable as a face seen by lightning. Now, Kaluther says, the myth she's referencing centers around Uruvasi catching sight of Pururavas by a bolt of lightning. Uruvasi is basically a personification of beauty, of which she is one of four such personifications. Indira, the god of thunder and lightning and king of the gods, think Zeus, is pissed that she's tarrying with a mortal and wants her back in the heavens, you know, where she belongs. So he contrives to steal the livestock. And when Pururavas runs out to keep his promise, then Indira lets loose a bolt of lightning to illuminate his figure and break both conditions at once. So when Agia is revealed in her scream like a face by lightning, I don't know. That's actually a really cool catch. Yeah, I think so. Wow, that's awesome. Um, yeah, well done, Carruther. What's nice, too, is that it gives us a little more to hang on to in trying to to really figure out what Wolf was thinking about Agia and Angelus. And, yeah, I want to go back and actually think through that a little bit more because when we talked about the Pravasi myth before, we just kind of threw it out there as sort of a general, maybe kind of thematic connection. But maybe Wolf was thinking a lot more about that if it comes up again. Yeah. Now I'm curious, like, were there other times when Asia shows up where there are other just phrasings that connect to it? I don't know. But Well, um, I'm really happy to see someone demonstrate that this reference that Agia makes has a broader context in the book. And I want more, and, and maybe there is more, but this is just excellently done. Yeah, her face, you know, revealed by lightning. But the thing is, though, she plays the role not of Urvasi, but of Pururavas. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot in this association that uh, Carruther has drawn. It would be Severian whose feelings change when Agia is revealed. Not that his feelings really do. As he go on, you know, Severian still seems pretty hung up on her. Something in this association also suggests that whether it's the Yasadis or the first Severian, there ought to be some manipulation in Severian's breakup. I'm talking about, you know, his letter from Owen, his father, and also about his defeat of Agalus. And while well, we do agree about that, maybe. And Agalus's execution. I'd like it to mean more for the association between Severian and Agia to, to mean more. But this is, I don't know. It's something I think it's real. I do. Thanks. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, definitely. A lot of interesting things are going on at the Gene Wolf subreddit. Uh, a Pentopsilus posted a three-parter on the significance of Valeria in the solar cycle. I, I, and I truly recommend it. I'll, I'll put the links yeah. to that in the show notes. Also, Lord of Atlantis has some musings about the location of Nessus in Severian South American Commonwealth. Also, Redditor Luzelli posted a question about the ultimate purpose of the Botanic Gardens. As often happens for me, someone will pose a question in just the right way that leads to a ping to the answer to maybe a question I'd never even properly considered at all. And in this case, we know the primary purpose of the Garden of Endless Sleep is to allow the autark to confer with the Kamean on the other side of the planet, Italy, I presume. We also know 
that the Botanic Gardens are a department of Master Olton's Guild of Curators. The Botanic Gardens are, I think, essentially a library resource. The Kamehian is as much a library reference as Ern Smith is in A Borrowed Man and in Interlibrary Loan. So the Garden of Indian's Sleep is treated like any other library section. You know, people wander in and out, but the places for people to consult the books, the references that are there. And I think the people of the Commonwealth who have, on their own, repurposed the Garden of Endless Sleep to bury their dead, just like the intelligent rats who make the Citadel Library their home to construct apartments for themselves or from books. And then the manatees got in, and then Aniri brought in the Avern plants to deal with those, and then the people started dueling with the plants. What Wolf, I think, has succeeded doing in this story is integrating layers of change in his world in a few pages of narrative about other things. So I guess that every one of these rooms are a library resource that links to someone the Autark and Neri need to reference from time to time. Then it's open to the public because after all, you know, this is a public library. And that certainly connects with how Hildegan says that he's seen somebody go talk to the Cumaean, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or no, 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 no. Does he say that? Yeah, he, 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 it's understood that, that the Autark is the one coming out to see the Cumaean and that's okay. why it's there. So he can consult this, this library reference. So now I want to know more about the others, like who would be going to consult somebody out in the, in the jungle or the who garden of delectation or, right. right. <laughs> Um, I always think they're the Zaphod Beeble Brocks and the Triple Breasted Whore of Eroticon 6. <laughs> but, um, anyway, but yeah, like who would they be going into the jungle hut to talk to the missionaries or would they be going to talk no. to the native? I don't know. I mean, no. both of those would be really interesting ideas. And then the sand room. Right. Who are oh, I have there. some ideas on that, but we'll have to save that for a <laughs> few more chapters. And uh, Irma Gulio had a post on what was your first Gene Wolfe encounter? And of course, that caught my eye, Craig, because as you guys might have noticed, there are some extra episodes in your feed. Little mini episodes, little interviews with Wolf readers, interviews with names you know from the Earth List and the Gene Wolfe Appreciation Society Facebook page, and you know, who knows where else. And the core of these interviews is five questions. Very often they just, you know, continuously branch out from there, but those are the core five questions. One, first encounter with a wolf story. Two, favorite novel or short story, either or both. Three, favorite wolf word. Four, a personal non-consensus theory about a wolf story or your favorite one. And five, most frustrating mystery in a wolf story, any any wolf story. Of course, once I lure people into our cell and we get them on our examination table to choose from a (laughs) bounty of appropriate metaphors. Well, I, you know, Craig, as you've seen, I I find it sometimes hard to cut them loose. So they just go on. And I originally intended for these to be like five minutes long, but they're never that short, I'm afraid. And sometimes that's more fun. Yeah. And sometimes they go on for quite a while, but I love these, and they are just the kind of wolf content that I'm always looking for myself. And so I hope you all like them, because if you agree, I I hope I'll have like a hundred of these in a year 
sometime I might even push them onto a separate feed. And this is the beginning of content that is brought to y'all entirely by the generous Patreon support of listeners like you. What? That sounds very NPR-like. <laughs> yes, exactly what I thought of. But that's right. We are starting a Patreon, and we put out a little a mini episode video slash thing. Actually, the the episode is just the sound of the video that you can go see on Patreon. Um, Patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. We decided we would finally put one up, not because we just want to like chill off of you guys, but it's just a fun way for us to you know pay the bills for the hosting and maybe upgrade some microphones at some point, um, which would just be a little less work on the editing side. Um, but also it's a way to sort of maybe make us get a little more disciplined about extra content. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing we are going to do. We're going to offer for people who sign up on Patreon, you're going to get access to some extra episodes. It's not that we're going to any kind of paid format or anything. It's all these chapter by chapter things are always going to be right here where you've seen them forever. These are just extra things that won't always be about Wolf, but maybe about things that are Wolf adjacent or things even Wolf adjacent in the sense of just the kind of stories that people who like Wolf also like. I think we're going to start with Jorge Luis Borges Mm -hmm. and go through a few things for him. But we also been talking behind the scenes I've been rereading Long Sun, and I know James always wants to reread Long Sun and, or talk about Long Sun and Short Sun at any point. So we thought we might do some things with that over there, not in a chapter by chapter way, but uh, but still in some kind of more organized way. Right. Uh, because honestly, if we were ever going to do that, that's still like four years away or something like that. <laughs> if we were ever going to do it, if yeah, that would be it's it's literally a seven volume commitment. Right, right. So so this is just a way that we thought we could start up. And I know that the other two Wolf podcasts out there have their own. And I know a lot of you guys are probably, if you're big fans, you're like, oh, I can't do all three. We understand. <laughs> it's not a, it, that's okay. Right. We, we've set it up where there are two levels. There's a $2 thing, which just gets you access to all that bonus content. Uh, we decided we're not going to do something where, you know, certain kinds of episodes are available for people at certain levels we that just kind of gets confusing but that's how if you don't know what patreon is it's set up so that you can offer uh monthly donations at different sort of price points and you get different extra stuff based on uh how much you give but we just have two there's a two dollar thing and a five dollar thing but all the actual episode content you get just for two dollars that's right Um, and the five dollar thing is more if you're just feeling really generous then we have things like fun little stickers with the show logo and um, a few other things that you'll start to notice here and there, hopefully, um, (laughs) especially for very frequent commenters. Right. But those two are the two levels we have set up right now. Journeyman and master seemed appropriate. It'd be very hard for us to go to a higher level. I guess it'd have to be the autark level at that point. (laughs) But what would we do? What I mean, what could I possibly do? I'm already mailing out stickers what can i possibly offer (laughs) that is worth going to a higher level nothing 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 at all another uh, useful thing about this is that we need to find a creative way to give out those copies of swan wolf that marianne swanwick gave us we have what about 18 copies of this Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel right you know just selling them as merchandise because they were gifts and you know right. it was really gracious so you guys have any ideas about how we can do this um 
in a creative way, in a non-transactional way, uh, that would be be really great. I also, I have two copies of a poster of the Book of the New Sun, the uh, the cover that was the on, the, on the right the omnibus version that somebody gave us to give out in some creative way. The only trouble is I have to warn you about both these these Swanwick uh, books and these posters. They've been graffitied uh, by somebody went and signed their name. Some guy Swanwick signed his name at the front of, of it. And then there's, I don't know, I couldn't quite make it out. It's mates. I don't know. But they're, they're, the posters are scribbled on, too. So I'm sorry about that. You're just going to have to accept that. <laughs> Although this is the kind of – it's like Banksy graffiti, right? This yeah. <laughs> is graffiti that will actually add to the, the value. I think in a special way it just might for the right re- recipient of these uh, items. And just to be clear, we're not talking about us. We didn't. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no but nobody wants us. No, no, look. Michael Swanwick signed the books. Uh, Don Mate signed the posters. We got to figure out how to give them out. Um, so come up with your ideas. But it's it's fun. If you are even considering or close to considering it, go check out, like I said, patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And there's a little video. You can actually see James and I talking with our faces, which was kind of weird to do. <laughs> We're uh, we talking with our awkward, faces. But... <laughs> As we are wont to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we go into a little more detail on that. But we really appreciate all the people who signed up so far uh, to do it. More than, more than we expected, to be quite honest. Yeah. Yeah, within... 24 hours no no 12 hours i mean i just couldn't believe the response yeah Yeah, it was fast so we can't say how much we appreciate all you guys who already signed up for it and and especially to a few of you who've been asking us for a while like how can i help you guys out because i know it costs money to to host these things and that kind of stuff so we just the the support that you guys have already given us and that we're getting more of here we're just Super appreciative. But yep, so that's going to go towards paying the bills. And then, like we said, also, it's kind of a fun way to make sure that James and I stay on the ball to get extra things going. And uh, I know for me, it's always a good way to convince Amber that, you know, hey, this isn't just a waste of time. (laughs) It's not just a waste of time. actually bringing some (laughs) income. But but yeah, so that's a new thing. If nothing else, you can go over there and look at the video. Yeah. And just see what we look like. See (laughs) See what we've been hiding. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, let me say something about these mini interviews. They are free. They're not behind a paywall. They're available to everyone. But if you do want to do an interview with us, you know, sometimes it'll be both of us, sometimes just one of us. The point of the interview is that it's all about you guys anyway. But if you want to do it, you don't have to be a listener. You don't have to be paying, you know, into the Patreon. This is something that, you know, Patreon subscribers are supporting. For the rest of you, you don't have to be ascribed to Facebook or Reddit or Twitter or Instagram. The only right. thing that is required is that you have an answer, any answer to all those five questions. You don't have to be inside the United States. We interviewed author Jack Dan. He's in Australia. So anywhere is fine. All you need is a computer and a halfway decent internet connection. Yep. We chatted with someone earlier today who doesn't listen to the show and even forgot which show we were. <laughs> so uh, but that's that's fine because we're chatty all the time on on Facebook and other that's places. Right. So, yeah. So if you just reach out to us via direct message on email, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, the, the links are available in the show notes for every episode. 
we'll set up a time when we can talk. And if you're on the other side of the planet, we'll schedule in the evening or in the morning, you know, for us, a, a time, a day that works for everyone. And the pain and suffering will be over typically in less than <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> we'll do the interview with you and then we'll do some light editing and take out, you know, the externalities and ums and on. And as always, you and we will sound much more articulate in the recording that we do in real life. And it will go up on the podcast feed for you to refer to your friends and family so they can finally understand what you've been up to. Your small steps towards celebrity. That's right. Begin with us. And as I said, thank you. Thank you to all the people who've already given at patreon.com slash rereading wolf. Like I said, when you sign up at the master level, you get a uh, sticker of the logo uh, designed by artist Mike Benowitz that he made for us. And after all, you know, spring is coming. It's wedding season. So there are a lot of people are on the hook for coming up with anniversary gifts. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> and, any, <laughs> and anyone who stays at the master level for three months will get another sticker. Another sticker? But dude, I already have that sticker. No, these stickers are of the podcast's classic logo. The crude drawing that some idiot did of Gene Wolfe reading a book. And then after another three months, there'll be another sticker on the way. And you know, it's interesting, we can actually see from where people are downloading these episodes. And you probably not be surprised to learn that most people listen to them in the United States. You know, it has a big population, they speak English, but people do it from all over the world. But something really surprising for me is that there was one country that when it comes to contributing at the Patreon, positively overperformed Canada. A quarter of the stickers that I sent out were to Canadian addresses. I don't say this to shame any other country, including my own. <laughs> I'm surprised people listen to us drone on at all and that people would donate for more than that is particularly amazing. You are all terrific and we are so grateful. But Canada, as an arbitrary category, I'm blown away by you guys. <laughs> I take back every bad thing I've ever said about you Canadians. And believe me, that's a lot to take back. <laughs> I grew up on Lake Erie. But I repent of all that now. You guys are simply amazing. Thank you. And so I want to thank the people who contributed at the time of this recording. At the journeyman level, thank you, Daniel Friedman, Dustin Thorne, Mark Watson, Matthew Clay Lucky, Paolo Turchio, Snorlax, Tim Mitchell, and T. Hodler. That was just so thoughtful and generous. And at the master level, thank you to these folks, some of whom did not limit themselves to the $5 minimum. Alston Jakubiak. I would sing my song to me about the time they called me Shaggy. Christopher Lydon. Well, if the devil is alive. Donald Connell. Donald Crossman. Euclid Jade. Of Euclid Father Anthony. God bless, God bless Father Anthony's gonna make everything alright. Finn Matthews. Internaut. Mike Farrar. Ori Kowarski, Sean Michael Robinson, Dream 
be a Robinson Crusoe. Shay McNair. I wanna live What's up, Shay? Toby Keemer. Hey, Mr. Schemer. Michael Hermes. Wilder Ramsey. And Thomas, just Thomas. I can work out his name, but he logged in in Patreon as Thomas, <laughs> and so that is his name. And if you ever want to be addressed by your full name, Thomas, just let me know and I'll consider changing your tag. So one thing we are doing for the masters is you may have noticed that when we were doing comments, a couple of people had little extra musical tags behind their name. That's one thing we decided for the master level folk. If they're going to be commenters, we can just kind of throw those in there just as a way to identify yourself and maybe make that name a little more familiar. Yeah. Um, it just seems to help with the sort of ongoing conversation. Yeah. I think. But we thought that would be fun. And Stephen Frug is, of course, grandfathered in. Also, the listener who left the Apple podcast review, Bandersnatch also grandfathered in for no particular reason. I've got you all on a spreadsheet so I can see when you're due for another sticker and what your tag is. Also at the master level, Charles Gillingham. But if you go down to Gillingham, you'll see the same as I own. That guy. Yeah, Charles Gillingham stickers are not in the mail. Charles refuses to help us get the stickers to him that he so clearly deserves for joining at the master level. He is opting not to receive his stickers as a master level subscriber. Apparently, he is under the mistaken impression that he's allowed to do that. <laughs> when I reached out to him asking if he would give me his address, he responded with, I will not. <laughs> and at this time, we don't have his mailing address. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will cover you in stickers. Make it easy on yourself, Charles. Take your sticker like a big boy and it'll all be over. Don't force our hand. Nobody wants that. Finally, if you are a master level subscriber and you haven't noticed the email that I sent you asking for your address, check for it. Send us your address. Let Charles be a warning to you. So we do have some sad news uh, to people who may be familiar with a lot of the old names from the Earth List, and we certainly talked about a bunch of them, but um, Roy C. Lackey, who was a very extensive contributor on there from the early, early days, um, we just learned not too long ago that he recently passed away, and um, that's, you know, sad for a lot of reasons, just mainly even though we didn't know him and I only ever emailed with him. Um, but we know that that other people on the Earth list, like Michael Andre Giussi, actually did get to know him reasonably well. Um, apparently, Robert Borsky knew him pretty well off list as that well. That was the strangest part, right? We recently discovered how much uh, Roy and Borsky, how much of a friendship they actually had. Yeah, we knew that Roy had edited some work for for Robert Borsky, but you know, if you were to take their public persona, Roy's persona on the Earth list, and Robert Borsky's his works, you could not imagine two people whose philosophy 
uh, as far as reading Wolf, were further apart. Oh, yeah. Almost diametrically opposed, I would say. I mean, yeah. Roy was very much a very strict, strict textualist. That right. anything that wasn't clearly put forth in the text, he wasn't necessarily happy with. Which is, you got to admit, that's a hard way to read Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's leaving a very high standard for yeah. figuring out the puzzles. But he was more like that. And then Borsky, of course, was... Yeah, he's almost kind of creative a... And, right. and yeah, would, would think more about you know, analogies more than actual textual reasons for things. Yeah. And recently talking to Michael and uh, we actually got in contact with uh, Borsky about uh, Roy's death. And he had written kind of a really beautiful eulogy about their relationship Mm -hmm. and how Roy kind of saw them as spiritual brothers or something like that. Mm -hmm. Very, just very similar in direction and outlook. And that was really, really amazing. Yeah. So it was nice to get to know a little bit more about the guy. I had certainly responded on a lot of his stuff on the earth list, but he and I also emailed back and forth just a couple times um, about some other issues, particularly because once I realized that he was definitely not a particularly religious reader, I got in touch with him and I was just kind of curious because I was like, what, what's it like being a sort of non-religious wolf reader? Cause that's kind of where I am too. And it was just nice to sort of share some of those perspectives on it, but nothing particularly deep, but it was just nice for that. He was willing to take the time to just talk to this. Nobody right. who was curious. And then he was always, always um, sometimes with a, a little bit of a grumpy tone, uh, willing to respond to anybody on the earth list and, and did so, you know, sometimes, like I said, he'll sound grumpy, but he did it with good intentions of saying, hey, you know, what you're saying is way off base yeah. in the text and doesn't really have much support for it. Yeah, um, he definitely thought he was in the side of the angels, even, oh, yeah. <laughs> even if he was dumping hot coals on people. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, he was because he I think for him, it was the sense of loving Wolf's text so much that he wanted to make sure that anything that people said about them was still very much based in wolf and not not just a theory not just a speculation but definitely not sort of adding their own thing or saying hey here's what i think would be cool if the text said this and that certainly would never sit well with them yeah and in in a time when the only way to really kind of understand this text at a broad level across from end to end was to have just a incredible knowledge of it at the textual level Mm -hmm. roy had that Roy was that was one of his gifts really I don't know how many times he reread the books but they were a lot more than me and so if he could command a textual reference at at a moment's notice yeah and it was obvious from the way he did things that he would remember wording of many passages not only those ones that most people may know really well but all kinds of things that he would just get a sense that oh that's different from how I think it was worded and he'd go back and check usually right Yeah. yeah But sad to hear of his passing, and we know he's got a couple sons. Um, Michael Andrejusi has reached out to them, and but we wanted to just let everyone else know. Yeah. Chapter five, the born. Okay, so we should really talk about the meaning of this chapter title. We should. It's not a book by Jeff Vandermeer. No, no, it's not. It is a book called Born Without the You by Jeff Vandermeer. It's a very, very good book. And it's got nothing to do with anybody's identity. There's no spy in this or. 
Right. And he said that it may be a a Netflix show. Like they really series out of that. Oh, how cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a born is a boundary, like a terminus, a line Mm -hmm. that divides. It's also a goal or destination. And, and I think this is probably the first meaning, at least that it's a stream or a brook that only has water flowing in it at a particular time of year, Uh, water, you know, seasonally. Yeah. In chapter 20, we learned the word freshet, a stream that's only wet intermittently as runoff from rain. So my wolf knew a lot of words for streams. <laughs> Just goes back to the library thing. Like, did he have a, a book of weird synonyms, like a weird <laughs> Let's check out streams. Well, all these things do come to play in the story. Um, line of dividing, of course, fits for Severian, the a goal or a destination. Maybe that's kind of the secondary meaning. We start with Severian and Jonas discussing the execution and then, you know, Severian gets a destination and finally it ends in a brook. Hmm. So it's the evening of the same day that this volume started. I believe this to be the day after the event at Perilous Gate where the group Mm -hmm. split up. If Severian left the tower on Sunday, this is Friday, five days later in the evening. If you want to insist on an extra day that could be inserted, then this is Saturday. I don't think it is, but it can't be more than that, in my opinion. After Morwenna's execution and the cattle thieves, there was a dispute about payment. Severian was already paid one-fourth of the full payment in advance. Severian believed that he'd get paid an additional quarter with each execution. But the Alcalde said that it had been his intention that Severian would get the full amount after the entire job was complete. Now, to be fair, this might have been true. The Alcalde might have intended Severian's pay to be covered by the money coming into the fair that he's setting up. He might have spent all the money on hand to cover that. But still, you know, Severian says that this is an agreement that he would have never accepted. And now, after he's heard from the green man that the Vodalari were coming to rescue Barnock, he thinks it's even less in his favor. A lot of things could go wrong for him in that case, but Severian said that he wouldn't do the final execution on those terms. He'll just take his quarter payment and walk. So the Alcalde ante's up and there's no bad feelings. So that makes Severian look like he's strong and confident and a good kind of negotiator. It also paints the world he's in as really not very procedural. Whereas he's always thinking about like, this is customary and this Mm -hmm. is customary and here's the way to do things. And it's another, to me, another sign of, even though he's savvy enough to argue with the guy back, it seems more like Severian's still pretty naive and assumes that, Oh yes, the world knows the customs. Right. And culture shock. Right. Yeah. 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 Even though it would help him financially to ensure the execution went off without a hitch, it might mean more money even if he had told the Calde that the Vodalari were coming and then they, everyone would be ready for them. It would have made him a hero in town. Still, mm-hmm. Severian doesn't tell the mayor what the green man told him. He's still a loyal Vodalari. Now, Severian and Jonas are eating in their room. Quote, a smoking platter and a bottle of wine. The door is locked and the innkeeper is supposed to keep it on the down low that Severian is staying there. Severian is reflecting on the hard life of a rock star. 
He says, <laughs> to be, quote, popular with the mob and known to everyone is great, but fame is exhausting. You're always answering the same questions and turning down invitations for people to buy you drinks. Now, with a cup of wine, Sperian says it makes him recall that they discovered wine in his water pitcher the, the last night when they checked in. And that's where we get this additional alert. Severian had just been secretly checking out the claw before the wine was discovered. Mm-hmm. And any experienced wolf reader knows that two references to the same event means something. <laughs> when you read it the first time, that second time really underlines, mm-hmm. you know, hey, yeah, you you didn't just imagine it last time. Yeah, right. Water into wine is going on here. Right. It, it doesn't always mean the same thing, but it means the event matters in the story. We've already talked about it. You know, it seems peculiar. Maybe the purpose is to remind the reader of all the wonderful things the claw is supposed to do. Uh, this is a fantasy story, of course. But, you know, Craig, that whole water to wine thing, I don't like it. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Jonas sees Severian's contemplation. He figures he's troubled about Moena's execution, you know, because it turned out he'd executed an innocent woman. And regardless of what Severian says he was thinking about, I suspect we are to understand that he was not thinking about the wine in the pitcher last night. Maybe he was thinking about the blood from Marwena's execution. You know, Jonas gives him, you know, sort of the same justification that you might hear from Gerlo. You must remember that you're not responsible for the sentences. If you had not come here, they would have been punished eventually anyway, and probably would have suffered worse in less skilled hands. And Severian says, what do you think you're talking about? And he says, I can see it troubles you. What happened today? I thought it went well. <laughs> <laughs> he says, Jonas says, you know what the octopus remarked when he got out of a mermaid's kelp bed? I'm not impugning your skill, quite the opposite but you look as if you could use a little cheering up. (laughs) Okay. I guess that means a mermaid wasn't too happy about the experience. (laughs) But, you know, that dialogue was just so good. Yeah. Is that the second uh, sailorism we get? Because he has one in the last chapter of Shadow, right? And, oh, yep. One of his first line. Yep. Or a second line. Uh, where is it? You've understood me better than I wanted, as the man said when he looked to the mirror. Yeah, other yeah, okay. one, but it's definitely becoming the pattern now. That yeah. That's how sailors talk. Severian says that Master Palamon said that carnifixes are always a little down after an execution. He said, quote, it's a purely mechanical psychological function. And Severian says that he used to think that that's an oxymoron. An oxymoron is a term that is self-contradictory, like jumbo shrimp, only choice, um, original copy, true mm-hmm. myth, act naturally. So um, is Severian saying that mechanical psychological is an oxymoron or psychological function is an oxymoron? I think mechanical psychological, like the idea that Mechanical things happen sort of without consciousness. It's just cause and effect. Mm, yeah. But he's come to realize that actually there are things about psychology that can be mechanical. Even yeah. if you're still experiencing them and thinking that you're in control of your emotions, there's still a mechanical thing. And honestly, that fits with everything we've talked about, about how there are mechanical causes and spiritual causes all operating at the same time. 
also um, mechanical is is like a physical thing. It's like um, it comes from from hand, right? I believe so. And so, yeah, you're, yeah, I can see that. Mechanical is something physical. Psychological is something pure thought. Yeah. Especially for Severian, I can see why he would think that way. But yeah, I just like that it comes back. It's very much like what he and Dorcas had talked about, Mm -hmm. but it's a tiny example of how those things get mixed up. But of course, I think the obvious question is why the human mind acts like that after an execution. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's nature's way of telling you something's wrong. Exactly. And that goes back to the other thing too, about how even mechanical things can have spiritual dimensions or in this case, psychological dimensions. So it's not just a mechanical operation. It's because there's a reason. It's because (laughs) killing someone is unnatural. Is unnatural. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And he's going to suffer through that all the time. And, you know, who knows? Think about what we know about Gerlos. After all, what happens when you spend a life full of this, of going through these mechanical reactions, but they take a toll. Right. Jonas does feel like Severian is disturbed by the execution, by the self-evident fact that he took part in an injustice. Severian talks a lot about the torturer's commitment to justice as a life mission. And yet, you know, they regularly retreat to being a mere tool of the state when it suits them. We obey when no one else will. It's their great secret. They are the only true patriots. You know, I wonder I wonder about the extent that Gene Wolfe was working his own service in Korea through this book, as at least for Severian, as a tool of the state. Mm-hmm. I think a lot. Yeah. I think that's kind of what a lot of people who knew him personally see this as. And I know both um, Swanwick and... Uh, well, Clute talked about it. We haven't mm-hmm. had him on the show, but, <laughs> but I know Michael Swanwick, when we talked to him, he expressed how much of this book he thinks is definitely Wolf working through things about his service in Korea. I mean, and it's obvious in the last book where you actually have a young man going to war for the first time, but mm-hmm. I think you can see that everywhere in right. all of this. Yeah. So it's a great, great yeah. catch actually for how to, how that even shows up in this point. Yeah. But Severian is being disassociative. He seems to know Jonas is trying to be comforting, but he's resistant to accept that he needs comforting and trying to act like he's unaware Jonas is trying to do it. So Severian asks if he was able to view the execution. And Jonas says, yeah, I was right behind you the most of the time. You had a good view then, so you must have seen how it was. Everything proceeded smoothly after we decided not to wait for the chair. I exercised my skills to applause, and I was the focus of admiration. Is being an entertainer really part of his job? Maybe it is. Yeah, I think the way he talks about, even with that step, right, about how Palamon would even, you know, use his sword to launch up onto Mm -hmm. the stage and all that. Yeah, there's definitely a big, big lot of pageantry, I think. Yeah. Well, he talks about Palamon telling him that stuff about uh, crowd melancholy and court melancholy. Oh, yeah. He says, you know, right now he has crowd melancholy. <laughs> court melancholy is when a master is brought into contact with, you know, the highest ranking exultants. He says, um, suppose there's some exceedingly sensitive prisoner who's thought to possess important information. An official of lofty standing is likely to be delegated to attend such a prisoner's examination. It appears they are in a position to interrogate. There was a speculation that that was impossible given that they were to treat 
the speech of clients, like the Twitter of mice. Right, right. I think we talked about that too, didn't we? About how, whether or not, yeah, we were arguing about that, about right. whether or not, not you and I, I think some, some readers so, and I had different right. ideas. Yeah. <laughs> about what actually was. No, it's, it's interesting because it gets back to what's their duty. And if they're just to obey, then interrogating would actually kind of put them slightly more in the decision-making process. Well, yeah, I'd still have to get the information out. A conduit for the information. Right. Right. So, all right. So that, that part goes on. Very often he will have had little experience with the more delicate operations. So he'll ask the master questions and perhaps confide in him certain fears he has concerning the subject's temperament or health. A torturer under those circumstances feels himself to be at the center of things. And then he feels let down afterward. Severian is asked if Jonas has ever seen an execution badly botched. And Jonas says, no, aren't you going to eat any of this meat? <laughs> yeah, I love this. How <laughs> Jonas just seems he's he's not particularly invested in any of this stuff. It's almost like once Severian is like, no, I'm not dealing with it. I, I get the sense that Jonas has either sort of been like, oh, OK, or he kind of realizes, oh, no, he's still just talking and he's not, doesn't really want to pay attention to what he's really worried about. So yeah, yeah. whatever. Well, maybe Let it's him. off his appetite for starters. Yeah. Also, Jonas is probably thinking, I'm going to have to pretend to eat all this meat all by myself. <laughs> yep. Imagine if Jonas had to go to an actual Brazilian steakhouse. <laughs> it's his nightmare. It'd be a lot of passing. Yeah. Severian hasn't seen a, a botched execution either, but he's heard stories about it. Right. So uh, let's see. Times when the client has broken away and fled into the crowd. Times when several strokes were needed to part the neck. Times when a torturer lost all confidence and was unable to proceed. When I vaulted onto that scaffold, I had no way of knowing that none of those things was going to happen to me. If they had, I might have been finished for life. And Jonas says... You know, still, it's a terrible way to earn a living. That's what the thorn bush said to the strike. You know, oh, there we go again. <laughs> Severian says on the page, I really don't. But I don't think it's in response necessarily to what Jonas says about it being a terrible way to make a living. I think he's supposed to read, I really don't. And then he hears a noise at the door. Mm hmm. Yeah. Either way, it does seem like he's going to argue with him. Like, right. He's like, it's a horrible way to make a living. And he's like, I don't see it that way. You know, <laughs> yeah. Kind of been, yeah. I wonder what he was. I, say, though. Yeah, yeah. I get that. He stops talking, like I said, because he sees something move on the other side of the room. And it turns out that rats really creep him out. A lot of clients were bitten by them in their cells. What it is, is a white sheet of parchment. Someone slipped under the door. Jonas suggests it's probably another Carnifex groupie wanting to sleep with him. <laughs> and in fact, it is a woman's handwriting, a woman who did want very much to sleep with him at one time and maybe wouldn't mind if she didn't hate him so much. But it's written in grayish ink. And of course, this is Agia's letter written as if it were from Thecla. And mm -hmm. when Severian learns the truth, he's going to say that there were problems with this letter, but then he had dismissed them. I suppose right. we should, when we read this, we should try and figure out what those things are. For starters, there are probably turns of phrases and uses of words that did not quite sound like her. Right. All, the, right. the other thing about this letter is this is the last artifact from Wolf's original idea of a novella. In that, Thecla, although I, I doubt that was the name of the character in the novella, that became the Book of the New Sun 
I, I wonder if her name was Marwenna. I don't think it was Thecla, though. <laughs> but uh, in that, she does write him, and it turns out that she was alive all the time, and he has to decide what he's going to do, because if he's found out, it's trouble. If he runs off with her, he'd have to leave his job as the master of the guild. So right. this is it. This is, this is the last little bit that we get from that. Yeah, let's go ahead and read the letter. Dearest Severian, from one of the kind men who are assisting me, I've learned you're in the village of Saltus, not far away. It seems too good to be true, but now I must discover whether you can forgive me. Now, remember, this is not just Severian's memory that makes Thecla being alive feel right. It's only been, I think, like 16 days since Severian passed that knife to her. 11 mm. days of that time was spent in a cell, day after day, unchanging day. And if you've ever survived the death of someone close to you, consider how long it was before you stopped feeling like they were just, you know, absent rather than truly beyond the possibility mm -hmm. of talking to them again. If they walked in the door a few days later, just think about how easy it would be to accept mentally that it had all been just a misunderstanding. Oh, yeah. I swear to you that any suffering you've endured for my sake was not by my choice. From the first, I wanted to tell you everything, but the others would not hear of it. They judged that no one should know but those who had to know, which meant no one but themselves, and at last told me outright that if I didn't obey them in everything, they would forgo the plan and leave me to die. I know you would die for me, and so I dared to hope that you would have chosen, if you could choose, to suffer for me too. Forgive me. But now I'm away and almost free, my own mistress, so long as I obey the simple and humane instructions of good father Anire. And so I'll tell you everything, in the hope that when you've heard it all, you will indeed forgive me. You know of my arrest? You remember too how anxious your master Gerlos was for my comfort, and how frequently he visited my cell to talk to me, or had me brought to him, so that he and the other masters might question me. And now, we've never heard all that, but if Severian told her all that in the few hours that they were together, walking around the Garden of Sleep, then, you know, he was incredibly chatty. Yeah. And I wonder if that's one of the parts like that she had added, like just, just assumed that, yeah, they, they do mm. that. So that, that could be one thing that he's talking about how the details don't add up. Um, the other thing right. I thought too, was when he just talks about like, I knew you would die for me. And it's like, well, the whole thing was that he didn't die for you and actually may be feeling guilty about that. Like that's <laughs> the one that stands out to me that it's, it's almost like she hadn't quite right. read the situation correctly. And that he would recognize that Severian would recognize that. But that was because my patron, the good father Aniri, had charged him to be strictly attentive to me. The bit about Father Aniri is probably an extrapolation of the Commonwealth's view of Father Aniri mm -hmm. and the Autark. The Autark had her imprisoned, so it must be the mysterious Father Aniri who had her released. And this might be plausible to any Commonwealth citizen. It certainly is plausible to a first-time reader. Oh, yeah. I mean, we don't know anything about the power and their relationship or anything, yeah. And Severian's never seen Agia's handwriting, but he has probably seen Thecla's, so this might be one of those inconsistencies. That's one thing I was going to wonder, too, yeah, because she actually says that she's, you know, writing, or, well, she doesn't say she's writing it herself, but she's definitely... Mm -hmm. it's, it's a woman's it. handwriting. The yeah. assumption is mm -hmm. that it's supposed to be hers. At length, when it became clear the Autark would not free me, Father Aneri arranged to do so himself. 
Oh, this is probably a major inconsistency. Uh, Thecla has told Severian that Aeneas and the Autarch's decision-making is so intertwined, it's impossible to tell who was doing the choosing at any time. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten yeah. that. So this one probably rang like a bell, so to speak, for Severian. But as always, Severian can be a bit of a dullard. Well, he's in the throes of passion and reading. <laughs> oh, he's excited. And he wants to believe it. Yeah. That's right. Um, I don't, I do not know what threats were made to Master Gerlos or what bribes were offered him. I think Severian would have found it incredible that Gerlo could be bribed or threatened. Yeah. The way he talks about him. Yep. Yeah. But they were sufficient. And a few days before my death, as you thought, dear Severian, he explained to me how the matter was to be arranged. It wasn't enough, of course, that I be freed. I must be freed in such a way that no search should be made for me. That meant it needs appear that I was dead. Yet the instructions Master Gerlos had received had charged him strictly not to let me die. You'll now be able to fathom for yourself how we cut through this tangle of obstructions. It was arranged so that I should be subjected to a device whose action was internal only, and Master Gerlos first so disarmed it that I should suffer no real harm. So apparently, Severian told Agia about the details of Thecla's excruciation. Right, yeah. And and back when he described it, he immediately talks about how thoroughly changed she looks. So she mm -hmm. would have had to be a really good actress. So. <laughs> In fact, that's what she talks about. When you thought me in agony, I was to ask you for means of terminating my wretched life. All went as planned. You provided the knife, and I made a shallow cut on my arm, crouched near the door so some blood would run beneath it then smeared my throat and fell across the bed for you to see when you looked into my prison. Did you look? I lay as still as death. My eyes were closed, but I seemed to feel your pain when you saw me there. At this point, we see that Agia is not sure whether Severian looked in on her after death or not, and so she's covering all the bases. Yeah, and also the thing about the arm just seems totally implausible. I don't know, like how much, like she she didn't want to wound herself it's more than a shallow cut. Yeah. Badly. And it's, but how could you get that much blood? And it's a weird detail anyway, that right. blood would be, I mean, even if the cell is very small, mm -hmm. it's, it's a strange thing. Yeah. But um, anyway, um, I nearly wept and I recall how frightened I was that you might see the tears welling up. At last I heard your footsteps and I bandaged my arm and washed my face and neck. After a time, Master Gerlos came and took me away. Forgive me. Um, it's also kind of a lot there just to, it's a whole lot. And and mm -hmm. that meeting even happened way after right. everything else. It's like, this, that's a lot of manipulation just for some little apprentice journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. They so, could have just sent him some other part of the city. Just or send him away. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now I would see you again. And if father Neri wins a pardon for me, as he has solemnly pledged himself to do, there's no reason why we need ever part again. Again, uh, this must have wrong peculiar right especially when you think about the class difference and the, the right. way she's all entangled in in the house absolute so so but come to me at once i'm awaiting his messenger and if he arrives i must fly to the house absolute to cast myself at the feet of the autarch whose name be thrice blessed balm upon the scorched brows of his slaves i don't think we have any evidence of thecla using an honorific phrase that's common among the lower classes in the commonwealth like Jalenta. And I was going to say, is that something that, that, I mean, granted, we only really see primarily lower class characters. We get a few exultants, but they, I couldn't remember if, if anybody else actually uses one of those kinds of. I don't recall Thecla ever doing it. Yeah. Um, I never, I don't actually even recall 
um, any of the masters doing it at the Citadel. I think that this is something that is common. That's a, it's a, that's an interesting little bit of color that 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 Wolf puts in without having to say so. Yeah. But I think that's a thing that the commoners do. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Pretty interesting. Okay. Speak to no one of this, but go northeast from Saltus until you encounter a brook that winds its way to Guile. Trace it against the current, and you'll find it to issue from the mouth of a mine. Here I must impart to you a grave secret, which you must by no means reveal to others. This mine is a treasure house of the Autarchs, and in it he has stored great sums of coined money, bullion, and gems against a day in which he may be forced from the Phoenix throne. I th- again, I think Agia is covering the bases. If Severian won't come for Thecla, he might come out of greed. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is guarded by certain servitors of Father Aeneas, but you need have no fear of them. They've been instructed to obey me, and I told them of you, and ordered them to permit you to pass without challenge. Entering the mine, then, follow the water course until you reach the end where it issues from a stone. Here I wait, and here I write, in the hope that you will forgive your Thecla. Now, (laughs) is this a reference to the water issuing from a stone a real thing? I mean, how much does Agia know about the interior of this cave? Yeah, because she's outside, right? Like, they're waiting outside. And so she's not actually going in there. Um, and, and she's also not, I mean, she brought people to kill him. So, I'm, I mean, I don't think she really intended the man apes to do it. Like she, but, well, she knew about the, the man apes in there. She knows about the autarch's treasure. It must be common knowledge in the Commonwealth, at least in this area that the man apes are there. The autarch's treasure is there. Mm-hmm. But has she ever gone inside? Does she know about what he's going to find in there? Yeah, I don't know. And of course, we never actually see the source of the water because it's dark and Severian's <laughs> busy fighting for his life. But right. um, but yeah, it's, it's a weird detail to put in. But I guess it's also just to make sure he goes deep into the cavern. Right. And it could be another one of those insurance things. If they don't shoot him before he comes in, the further in he goes, the more chance he has of getting killed by the man apes or whatever's right. in there. So I think that if we're looking for things, I mean, I think you pointed out a lot of the things that could be wrong. And I feel too, like the way that she writes about their relationship is she's much more devoted to him and everything here is kind of organized and orchestrated, you know, at, with, with an eye towards him. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if really the thing that he knows is that maybe he wasn't quite as important to her. In, in all those ways. Cause he does find out later that he, you know, she did love him in a way, but when he has the full perspective, he also realizes that, you know, some of his worries about, you know, I'm just a boy, I'm low class. Right. She sees me as things that all those things were. She real. sees me as, yeah, she sees him as just a boy and he's certain that that's all she'll ever feel. And he's yeah. not willing to give without something in return. Right. But anyway, Severian is jubilant. He rereads mm-hmm. the whole letter. Jonas can see his face. He, First, Jonas gets up when he sees Severian's face, and but then he backs like he's in a room with a madman. He backs away. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, Severian just folds the letter and puts it in his saber dash. Does Severian <laughs> ever clean that thing out? Does he just keep putting things in it until it's stuffed with clutter <laughs> from his adventures, you know, like a the satchel in a video game? Yeah. yeah. All his receipts. and <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I, I was looking for that. Severian says Jonas, 
quote, asked no questions, for Jonas was indeed a friend, but showed by his look that he was ready to help me. But Severian only asks for Jonas's Merikip, which Jonas gives without reservation. Remember that they've only met yesterday. But given the pace of this novel, you know, who knows how many bonding moments and adventures they had mm-hmm. in that first day after the riot of Piteous Gate. Severian says that Jonas can't come, but if everything works out well, he'll make sure the animal is returned to him, which is a pretty cold way of telling your friend goodbye forever. <laughs> yeah. So their room is on the second floor, or maybe the inn is some kind of bi-level building. Severian runs down the stairs into the inn yard. Is this the first time Severian has mentioned that he has to go downstairs to get to the inn? I think so. Yeah. Remember, that's where the well is. Severian is remembering the contents of the letter, hearing Thecla's voice speaking the words. He looks briefly for Jonas's merikit, but he doesn't see it immediately. But he does see a, quote, great destrier, his back higher than my own eyes. Oh, heck, I can't waste time looking for the Merikip that's nearby. I'll steal a horse. A giant war horse, no less. <laughs> You're right. It's not, it's not a real horse, but they are really fast. Maybe mm-hmm. that's why he took it. But Severian speaks as though it was out of place for this little village. Is this Vodalus's animal? I think it must be. I Since we find out that, yeah, he's come back, yeah, I, I feel like that's the implication. Right, because he, we're going to find out later that Vodalus came looking for Severian at this time, but didn't find him. Right. And here we have a little Wolfian form of twinning. You're just like number five taking over his father's house, just like VRT, taking Dr. Marsh's diary, like Weird taking the orange drink business, or Silk taking Pike's Mance and Mantian, like the Rajan taking... Horn and Silk's bodies, Severian is hopping on Vodalus's horse to go break into the Autark's treasure hoard. <laughs> In a sense, just by holding the claw, Severian has become the conciliator. So, yep. Vodalus never remarks about getting his horse stolen. So, anyway, he jumps on the Destrier, cuts the reins that are tethering it with Terminus Est. And this is cinematic and it's such a fantasy fiction move, like a Frenzetta oh, yeah. illustration. But I have to wonder how Severian controls a gesture when he's chopped up the reins. <laughs> That's a good question. But no, I always think of this next section as the Conan section. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because there are so many Conan stories where he's fighting like man-ape creatures and going into caves and things like that. But yeah, this part totally seems to me like the Robert Howard pastiche. So when you mentioned Frazetta there, I'm like, yep, perfect. Yeah. That's exactly what I think is right. Yep. And it's all sort of over the top and, and, you know, yeah. Cutting the reins with the the thing. Yeah. And the gesture is black. It's variants Mm -hmm. in his fulogen. This is a great use of negative space, Gene, in this (laughs) illustration that you're describing. But with one jump, the Destrier is out of the stable. And then on the next jump, they're out in the street. And Severian says that the Destrier was sure-footed as a dancer. It jumps a wall like a boy jumping over a stick, which is to say it was barely a jump for it at all. Severian says that despite its phenomenal speed, it moves, quote, as smoothly as a shadow. Yeah. 
The river that he's looking for is east of Saltus, and the street Severian is on leaves town to the east. And soon they're galloping at full tilt through a cow pasture. There's a mention here of green moonlight. Yeah. And this is possibly the first time Severian has ridden any animal. And he says that he would have fallen off a lesser steed in, quote, half a league traveling so fast. So I figure he rides at least one league to the brook. That's three miles or over five kilometers. Mm -hmm. But this is a really fast horse. It could certainly have been farther. And we don't know if that's part of the apprentice training. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Get on a horse. It's how to steal a horse. Yeah. They don't ever have animals. That's in the beast trainers next door. Right. Yeah. Severian stops the Destrier by grabbing his halter, the leather stuff around his head, but only in part. Mostly he says, you know, just, whoa, and something, or and the Destrier just recognizes the command and responds. Then he rides the Destrier first alongside the brook upstream, and then where the trees get thick, he steps into the brook and, and leads it through the water. The Destrio doesn't like that. At some points, they have to swim deep pools. So I suppose Severian gets back on and rides through those points. Yeah. And all this is making it seem longer and more difficult to get wherever they're going. Right. Which, I mean, which it was. But but yeah, it's it's also making sure that we know it's all dangerous and far mm-hmm. away from the town. And Right. And this goes on for well over an hour. Severian compares the forest to one that he and Jonas trekked through. Uh, after Piteous Gate on mm. the way to Solstice. And we get a bit of a description of the trees of that forest in Severian's Dream in Chapter 1. The banks of the brook get higher and more rugged, and the trees get smaller and become twisted. So I guess the soil gets worse for some reason. And maybe the Destro knows this water isn't really pure. I was going to say it starts to sound a lot like runoff from a factory yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways instead of just a, a brook, which it could well be. I mean, who knows if he's used to, quote unquote, brooks and rivers being actually like runoff from factories yeah. or waste disposal or something like that. Well, I mean, he's he's used to swimming in the guile. but That's uh, true. That is very true. But the gesture has better sense than Severian. That's inevitably true. And then Severian starts to see cut stones in the brook itself. So this is really a a kind of ruin. He's close to the old mines and a Mm -hmm. long abandoned city is in the valley nearby. Severian is going to pass through part of that city in the next chapter. And if there's a story about that city, Wolf doesn't seem to tell us. Yeah. Maybe he does. I'll keep my eye out. But no, the fact that he is now getting towards ruins, that still just feels all Mm Conan-y. Yeah. I tell you a story of high adventure. (laughs) So the way starts to get steeper. Remember that they're walking upstream and it seems like they've gotten out of the water at some point, but even the Destrio stumbles on the steep path and sliding gravel. So Severian has to get off and lead again. And then there's an interesting scene setting here. He says, in this way, we pass through a series of little dreaming hollows, each dark in the shadows of its high sides, but each flecked in places with green moonlight, each ringing with the sound of water, but with that sound only, otherwise wrapped in silence. Uh, that that part about the sound of the water is why it seems to me that they may have you know left being right by the brook because he only hmm. hears it. Maybe. I mean, I'm trying to think, is it also a way to 
to describe a very shallow stream that has, you know, little pools here and there. Mm, yeah, that's that, true. That make it go, but hard to say. I mean, he's definitely, the brook definitely goes into the mine because, of course, he he ends up dropping Terminus Est in the water, in the brook <laughs> when he's up there. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. One thing I'm thinking now is, I mean, I'm like, I should have reread the Brook Madrigal chapter from <laughs> Earth just to see if there's something similar about that brook in this brook. Oh. Yeah, that's word. a good point. I don't have any reason why, other than he calls them both Brooks. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, he does like that word, probably. <laughs> he says, quote, at last we entered a veil smaller and narrower than the others. Now, uh, we've been walking upstream very steeply. So I think by veil, he means not a valley, but a little trough or canal where water is flowing. And this canal is coming from a dark opening about a chain away, 66 feet, 22 yards, 20 meters. The opening is set in a sheer elevation. Water is flooding out, quote, like saliva from the lips of a petrified titan. Yuck. (laughs) Rereading it this time, the way he describes everything, I've always imagined it to be a mine in the sense of, like really a hole in the ground and then this brook to be a natural brook. But mm-hmm. the way he describes it, it could also be totally a sheer wall edifice of concrete or something like that. Sure. And this little veil could be a gutter, you know, that, that has been carved or something and thinking about how they use words that totally makes sense. But that actually changes a lot about how I picture it mm-hmm. that I, yeah. I normally picture it like a normal fantasy world kind of thing. He's out in the deep forest, but it, could well be the ruin of some big industrial something. And it's a mine because yeah, they go and dig for things left in the bottom of the the factory there, which, okay. And this is, this is not true at all, but this is a very cool reach, which is exactly oddly enough, how the world of Jeff Vandermeer's born works. And so (laughs) the fact that (laughs) this is called born and (laughs) yeah, that's how, I mean, everything in that book is all about a company who's, creations have gone crazy and so they Mm. the people survive by going in to harvest and forage whatever they can like well a lot of mines are nothing but foraging for old artifacts and and stuff so it's entirely i bet if if don mates had drawn this picture would have been much more sci-fi than it sounds to us yeah so this opening in the sheer elevation is not at ground level so the water is spilling out in a waterfall. And Severian figures that at one time there was a wooden scaffolding bridge that you'd walk up to get to the opening. But you know now there's nothing. And it's all rotted away and nothing is left. There's a little bit of ground for him to leave his destrier. And he manages to knot up what's left of his reins around a stunted tree. And then Severian scales the wall along the side of the waterfall. And sometimes this waterfall seems to be described as a dribble and sometimes as a rushing flood. And at the moment, it seems to be a flood. The waterfall Mm -hmm. is really loud. Severian can't really hear anything else. And yet he does somehow sense something. It's this sixth sense that he seems to have coming to play again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spider senses tingling. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, like when he saw the painting of the astronaut on the moon and thought it belonged in a green forest, mm-hmm. or, or yeah. the way he knew that he'd find Thecla's excruciation orders on Gerlo's desk. Mm-hmm. 
he senses the sound. Like he says, the note of stone falling upon stone or the splash of something plunging into the water. This, of course, is Agia and her assassins. She wants them to shoot Severian right now, but, you know, they'd rather be economical with their ammo. After all, you know, the ape men are going to take care of him anyway. Of course, if Agia is at all interested in Severian's sword and the claw, then this seems like she'd be absolutely opposed to this. I mean, how is she supposed to get them out of the cave if Severian dies there? There are some choices Agia makes in the future that could best be explained by the fact that she wants to be able to strip his body. Anyway, we're beyond worrying about things that don't quite add up with Agia. Well, there is an explanation. She could tell the henchmen that they need to kill Severian before he goes into the cave because, you know, he's carrying a sword worth a villa and he's carrying a priceless religious relic. But if she does that, it'll work, but they'll turn on her and take those things for themselves. So rather than debate it, she just you know picks up a boulder and tries to drop it on Severian's head. Unfortunately, for her anyway, she misses him. And clueless Severian doesn't even see it whiz by his head. He just says, huh, what was that? Yeah, and the text even presents it as he didn't know if he heard something or was he hearing the the horse behind him or the right. rear, shouldn't yeah. say horse. Um, and he just throws it off there, which is, again, another one of those great points where it makes total sense that he can't really hear anything because there's all the ambient noise of the water, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's a a clue for not exactly a puzzle, but it's just a good example of how Wolf will say something from one perspective. And then from a different perspective, you see it completely different. Right. Absolutely. Severian looks back and he doesn't see anything. He sees the destrier with his ears cocked forward and he decides that he's just, you know, heard the steel shoes of the destrier clinking on the rock. But if he'd known more about horses, and I suppose this Destrio is supposed to follow the same instincts as horses, he'd have known that the Destrio was listening to something in front of him. But as it turns out, if he'd gone back, then he would have been a dead man. That's the assassin would have killed him. He'd have been able to, you know, draw a bead on him with ease rather than how it ultimately turned out. So Severian enters the mine. Severian showing the forethought that he's famous for in these books, left (laughs) to explore a cave without a lantern or candles. (laughs) And soon he's in complete darkness. He's walking through a stream in the cave. The ceiling is low and he has to bend all the way over. Terminus Est is in its sheath on his back. He walks this way for a long time, fearing always that it had come wrong and that Thecla waited for me elsewhere and would wait in vain. And that is exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's pretty much a action chapter. Yeah. <laughs> it's one yeah. of the few, like get from point A to point B kinds of chapters. And we do right, a little exactly. building along the way, but um, a little bit more about Jonas's friendship, but yeah, mainly this is kind of rare for Wolf. I feel like, and it's, it's just a plot moving forward kind of chapter. We got this before he goes to uh, the house Azure, right? Right, it, where he's just with Rosha, and mm-hmm. they're just getting ready to go on. But yeah. um, yeah, it's just kind of a setup. A little, you're right, a little uh, Conan the Barbarian feel, and yeah, and here we are. I am interested now, though, in the idea that nothing is really natural, and even this waterfall is some kind of you know, runoff from. Uh, yeah, well, think about it. If it was all a city that he's moving into, yeah, uh-huh. the, the the trees would be smaller and stunted because they have to force their way through the concrete and yeah. pavement. 
I like that. I like that. Yeah, it totally changes my sense of the how I picture it, but mm-hmm. cool. I'm gonna go check again now. <laughs> if y'all have any comments or thoughts or corrections or complaints, you should just bring it to us on the Facebook group or the subreddit or Twitter or email. And you can find out how to do all that in the show notes. Leave an Apple podcast review. Tell your wolf reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Take care, everybody. Give me a ticket for an airplane. Ain't got time to take a fast train. And wrote me a letter. Look ahead, I, I gotta say, I don't care how much money I gotta spend. Got to get back, get on back to my baby one more again. Lonely day to go, I'm going home. Ha, my baby, that wrote me something on a piece of paper. And speaking of missives, try again, missus. <laughs> They're still talking out there, but they stopped banging pots. So that's <laughs> it's very interesting at the uh, Brewer household. And we can wait a second. It's picking up that siren. So, oh, there we go. Okay. okay, it's gone. And speaking of patrons, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there's the segue (laughs) segue to our ad yeah (coughs) is agia and her assassins (laughs) okay try again this is good because they didn't have too many bloopers oh well i'm here (laughs) you know i'm always here for you to provide the bloopers that you need